2 Samuel chapter 7. This morning, who rules your life? This morning, who is your king? Who is king over you? Back in 1979, Bob Dylan made many of his fans in the rebel generation angry with his song, Gotta Serve Somebody, where he sang over and over again. Everybody, eventually, has got to serve somebody. Despite their anger, the idea behind the song is true. You've got to serve somebody. You are, right now, serving somebody. Someone is king over your life. It might be you. You might be the king over your life. It might be some addiction that has you in its grip, and it is king over your life. Or the living God himself, who created all things, might be the king over your life. Last week we saw the people of ancient Israel calling out for a king like all the other nations. They did not have a king and they wanted one. And in doing so, they were rejecting ultimately God as their king. Yet we saw regardless of who was on the earthly throne or whether even there was an earthly throne in Israel, God himself remained the king over all things, whether the people acknowledged it or not. And today, as we continue with part two of the book of Samuel, we want to continue to look at this theme. Originally, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel were one book. When the Old Testament was first translated into Greek, uh, they discovered that the Greek language takes up more room than the Hebrew language. And so uh, the Greek version would not all fit together in one part. So they divided it up, 1 and 2, or 1 and 2 Samuel. Nevertheless, it is one book and is meant to be read as one book. And this theme of kingship is what runs through the entirety of this book, including the second half. Although in the second half, the emphasis begins to shift. You see, in 2 Samuel, we'll begin to see God finally raising up His choice for king over Israel in David of Bethlehem. This reaches its climax then in God entering into a special covenant with David. That's what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 7. It's also here that God begins to reveal more of His plan for His people as well as affirm His constancy and character among generation after generation. So while as you read 2 Samuel, the the primary human character that is at center stage of the narrative is God, it's clear that the story continues to be, excuse me, that the, the the character at center stage is David on the surface, it continues to be God in reality who is the primary character of the story. It is His nature and work in bringing about all things according to His wise and sovereign plan that the author is trying to show us again and again and again throughout human history. And so this morning, as we see God's dealings with Israel through David, we also see a glimpse of God himself. Through entering into a covenant with David, we see ultimately the character of God. And more than anything, what we see is a God who is faithful. As we see demonstrations of this faithfulness over and over again, we, will, we need to see a God who time and time again proves himself to be worthy to be the king over our lives. God demonstrates that yes, He is king, whether we acknowledge or not, but we should acknowledge it because God is faithful time and time again to honor His word and to work for the good of His people. So let's follow along now in first, uh, or rather in Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, as we see this covenant that God makes with David. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. 
And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the peoples of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you sh- who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for not my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. May God bless the reading of his word. In this passage and in all of 2 Samuel, God's faithfulness emerges in three significant ways. First of all, we see that God is faithful to his plan God is faithful to his plan. The narrator sets up the setting of our passage by telling us that the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. At the end of the previous book, 1 Samuel, King Saul died in battle with the Philistines. Then at the beginning of this book, 2 Samuel, we see David mourning over the death of Israel's king and now himself being anointed, that is, David being anointed as king over the tribe of Judah. Now, if you've read the first part, you realize, wait a minute, why just the tribe of Judah? David was appointed by God to be king over all of Israel. And the reality is that though God declared he would be king over all of Israel, there was opposition to this, both from within the people of Israel and from the nations from without. And the narrator tells us that in the midst of all this, God gave David victory over his enemies. God gave David victory over his enemies. Just as God said, I am setting you apart. When he was just a small boy, a shepherd boy out in the field, I am anointing you and setting you apart. I am giving you the spirit of leadership for your people, Israel, and one day you will be my king over my people. God was faithful to that promise. He was faithful to that declaration. He was faithful to that plan for his people. And now he is showing his faithfulness in bringing it about. God has rest from all of his enemies and is king over all of Israel. And now as he sits enthroned over Israel, he looks out from his palace and he sees something is wrong. He calls the prophet Nathan to him and says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. 
And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You understand what David is saying? The, the ark of God was, the, was that, uh, that box, as it were, by which God visibly manifested His presence. And He did so in the midst of a tabernacle, a tent that was able, uh, much like, although a lot smaller than the one that we took down, you pull up the stakes, you roll it all up, and you can take it wherever you want to. And as God's people moved through the wilderness and into the promised land and from battle to battle, the tabernacle was set up and the ark was put in place and God manifested his presence there. And now David is king. He's achieved uh, victory over his enemies. God has been faithful to him and now he's sitting in his palace. He is perhaps reclining after dinner, perhaps with the the prophet Nathan himself. And he looks out the window and suddenly something dawns on him. I'm living in a house made out of wood, and gold, and fine things, and my God who's given me the victory is living in a tent. This isn't good. He should have the bigger house. He should have the more spectacular dwelling place. And he calls the prophet Nathan and says, what about this? And Nathan says, look, you're God's king. He raised you up. He is with you. Do whatever you're in your heart pleases. Now, when he says that, he's not speaking as a prophet who has a direct word from God. Rather, he is speaking as a godly man who also desires God's name to be made much of. But God that night comes to Nathan and says, look, this isn't my plan. It may be David's plan. It may be his desire, but it's not part of my plan. And so he tells Nathan that night, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now understand, God is not dismissive of David or his plan. For in fact, in just a minute, and when he enters into this covenant with him, he's going to say, your plan is a good one, it's just not the right timing. Your son will build me the house, not you. Nevertheless, God wants to make clear that as God, he is not beholden to anyone. The Lord is saying to David, look, if I wanted a house, don't you think I could do something about it? David, do you really think I need you to tell me what my plan is? Do you think I need your wisdom and your counsel to help inform the fulfillment of what I desire to do with my people? In all of this, God is showing himself to be faithful to his plan, not our plans. In other words, all that God does, he does because he knows what is best for his purposes. He has a plan and has had a plan from before time began and now he is working all things out together according to that plan. You know, as we live our lives, sometimes we neglect the very clear directions that God gives us that are a part of that plan. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we say, eh, take it or leave it. He says, go and make disciples. And we say, eh, take it or leave it. He says, be holy for I am holy. And we say, eh, take it or leave it. Sometimes he tells us very specifically, this is what what part of my plan looks like. And we kind of say, whatever, maybe I'll do that if I have the time. But then other times, other times like David, we have some idea. We have some vision for ministry that we think is we just think is the tops. We think this is the way it's going to go. This is going to be great. But then God steps in and says, that's not part of my plan. That's not part of my plan. It may may look good. It may look like it fits into the larger plan that I'm working, but that's not what I want to do here and now. 
And there's two options for us when that happens. We can either have a man-centered response or we can have a God-centered response. The God-centered response is this. Lord, you are the king who is all-knowing and all-wise, who can see from beginning to end, and I am simply here to serve you. If this is not part of your plan, great. You show me what is and you move me in the right direction. That's the response we should have. Unfortunately, response that we usually have is the man-centered, the self-centered response. And we think to ourselves, God, don't you know how good this plan is? I mean, don't you, don't you realize the kind of fruit that's going to come from doing this this way according to my plan? I thought you wanted your church to grow, God. This is how it's going to happen. If we don't do it this way, God, you're really, really missing out on something great here. You're really missing an opportunity. And we see this all the time today. Someone writes a book about how their church grew from 50 to 15,000 members. And assuming that what they did was biblical and not just, not just uh, dancing clowns and pony shows, then we say, oh, if it worked there, then it must work here. And so we buy the book and we say, okay, if we have this music and we preach on this topic and we pray for this many days, then God's going to do exactly what He did there, here. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The plan may have worked for another church, another person, perhaps even in our own past, but that doesn't mean that's God's plan for us here and now. Even with the best intentions and information we have, we are not God. We are not God. And He is not fickle or capricious. He doesn't need our advice or suggestions because He has a divine plan for the ages and He is desiring to work all things out according to that plan. So the impetus on us is not only to rejoice in His faithfulness to that plan, the bigger plan in Christ and also the expressions of that plan in the growth of His church, local churches. But more than just praising God for His faithfulness, we also, by way of application, need to make sure that we are seeking to be a part of that plan for the here and now. Regardless of what has come on before, regardless of what may happen in the future, our desire is always to be rejoicing with God and fellowshipping with Him in such a way that we ourselves imitate Him and we find our lives being faithful to His plan. God is faithful to His plan, but secondly, God is also faithful to His people. This is one of the, the themes that we see over and over again in 2 Samuel, as well, really, in, in 1 Samuel. But especially here, what's interesting is God's rationale to David for why he says David cannot build him a house. Remember, he's already said, he's already said, that's a good idea, it's just not for now. And why does he, why does he tell him that? Look at verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says never once did He ask any of Israel's other leaders to build a permanent residence for Him, a temple. In fact... God says, just as my people have moved around, so I have moved around with them. I have not lived in a house, but have been moving about in a tent. God has chosen very specifically not to settle His presence in one place through a temple because His people were not settled in one land. 
For a long time, the people had been wandering and on the move, wandering not just in the wilderness physically, but also wandering spiritually, unsettled during the sinful condition and period of the judges where there is war after war after war against these surrounding peoples. And all along, God has been moving with them. Why? Why? Well, one reason, I think, was to show Israel and the nations that the Lord was not like the other gods. He was not like the false gods who, whose power was considered to be generally localized. So do you have the gods of Egypt? Do you have Ra, the sun god, and all these other... Yes, but guess where they're most powerful? Where they're worshipped in Egypt, where their temples are. And what the Lord is saying is, look, I'm not like those other gods. I'm not like those false gods. I am the Lord of all creation. It doesn't matter where you go. You can't hide from me. My power is the same in this little patch of land called Canaan as it is to the farthest reaches of the world. You can't get away from me. I am the Lord God of all things. I can manifest my presence and my power wherever I want. And so one of my, one of my absolute favorite stories from the book of Samuel is when the Philistines have, have taken the Ark of God. They've actually captured it in battle and they throw it in the temple of their god, Dagon. So here's this, here's this idol. You know, Dagon, whatever it looked like, you know, some, some weird looking thing. And, and they put the ark near the temple as if God is somehow going to then be subservient to Dagon, Yahweh, the Lord God. And they come in the next morning, guess what they find? They find the idol of Dagon face down, like it's in reverence to the Lord God. They say, oh, what happened here? And they, and they, you know, you know there's something wrong when your God needs you to pick him up. Okay? And, and so they pick him up and, and they, they, they put him back on the pedestal. And they come back the next day and his arms and his feet are broken off. And his head is, is on the threshold. And the narrator tells us from this time forward, when they walked into the temple of Dagon, they stepped over the threshold. They totally missed it. What, what was the Lord God saying? Just you can put me wherever you want. I am the true God. All others will bow down before me. Whether you put me in a pagan temple or whether you put me in my tabernacle or build for me a temple, it doesn't matter. All of creation is mine. That's what he's trying to tell the people. But then more than that, more than that, I think God is wanting us to see that he is not just the God over all things, but he is the God who is faithful to his people. He is the God who desires to be with his people. Pastor Dale Ralph Davis explains it well like this. Do you see what Yahweh is saying about himself? He's the God who travels with His people in all their topsy-turvy here and there journeys and wanderings. Do His people live in tents? So does He. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So He is the pilgrim God sharing the rigors of the journey with Him. Can you not see the astounding condescension of our God here? How can this revelation fail to overwhelm us and move us to adoring tears? God is saying, I am not just the God of all things. I am a God who is faithful to His people. If I call you to do something, then I am going to be there with you through it. It doesn't matter if it's great times of blessing and prosperity or whether you are going through the very pit of life. I am a God who is with his people. I am a God who never leave them or forsake them. I am faithful to my people. He says to David, I have raised you up from the fields of, of obscurity to be my king. And he enters into this special covenantal relationship with David in our passage. But notice why he does it. Listen and say, okay, God, why would you, why would you bless David in this way? What, why are you doing this? Verse 9, 
I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of Egypt and I, or of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Did you catch it? Why did he bless David? Why will he make his name great? Why will he defeat his enemies and give rest to the land? For his people, Israel. He said, I have, I have raised you up as a mighty warrior, David, that you may lay siege to all of your enemies because those enemies are the enemies of my people. And I desire, just as I have promised formally, to give them peace and a land to do that through you. Therefore, I will be with you in a special way, David. Not because you're special. You're nothing nothing. He says, by my gracious hand alone, I picked you up from shepherding in the fields, walking around with sheep dung on your sandals, and I have made you king over Israel. Why? For your sake? No. For the sake of my people, because I am a God who is faithful to my people. God is faithfully working to keep the promises that he has made. Over and over and over again. Despite our sin, despite our instability, despite our rebellion against Him, God says, I will remain faithful to my word. I said Joshua is not here this morning. He is visiting his grandmother for his birthday. But as I was thinking about this passage, he kept coming to my mind because that boy remembers a promise like no one I have ever seen before in my life. I mean, big things, little things. If you say it, and it's something good for him, he remembers it. I mean, he remembers it. So, for instance, we could be 8 o'clock Monday morning eating breakfast, and I may say, I think later in the week we will all go to the park. By 9.30, he's saying things like, so when we go to the park, can I take my kite? Can I take a bag of books? Can I take some G.I. Joes? It's like, Joshua, don't worry about it. It's at the end of the week, buddy. He comes back later by lunch saying, can we take a friend when we go to the park at the end of the week, Daddy? You said we could go to the park at the end of the week, so can I take a friend? Maybe. We'll see. It's a long way away. Don't, don't worry about that. By the afternoon, after rest time, he has a bag packed, ready to go for the end of the week. And I, the whole time he's saying, Daddy, uh, we're still going to the park, right? Now, you said we're going to the park. Is that going to be Wednesday or Thursday? Is it going to be Friday while you're gone? It's like, you know, and to be honest, it was really annoying for a while. <laughs> and then something occurred to me. He doesn't know he's doing it, but he's living the Christian life before my eyes. He's living the way we as God's people are supposed to live, both by the example of godly people in Scripture and both by direct invitation from God. God tells His people to so bank their lives on His promises to them that if He says, I will do this, that we continually, to the point of nagging, say, God, you said you were going to do this. Are you going to do it? You said you, you would do this. When are you going to do it? God, we want to see you keep your promise. And so in prayer, we are there begging, trusting. God, you are a faithful God and you said you're going to do this. God, now are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? God, we want to see it. This is why the entire book of God, the Bible, ends with a prayer. John has, has, has pulled back and he sees the cosmic battle from creation to new creation. He sees sin grab a stranglehold on his people, the, God's people, and he sees God come down in Christ and defeat that stranglehold. And he sees a day when Satan will be forever thrown into the pit. And you know what John's one prayer is? God, you've said you've done this. Do it quickly, Lord. 
to it quickly, Lord. Come back quickly and fulfill the promise that you have made. You see, God, God wants us to, to plead and to beg. Read the parable. Read the parable that Jesus talks about of the, of the man who has company that comes in the middle of the night and he is desperate because he has no food to give them. And he is literally banging on the door of his neighbor. You've got to let me in and you've got to give me some bread so that I can be a good host. God says, Jesus says, that's the way you go to your heavenly father. Not so that you can twist his arm and manipulate him into giving you something. Just nag him to the point that he wants to be done with you and send you away. No, because your heavenly father has made a promise to his people. He's made a promise to you and he will be faithful to do it. And that provides for us the confidence, the base, the platform to be entreating God with all of our might, saying, God, you promised to do this. Now do it, God. Be faithful to your word as you have always been faithful in the past. Both to Israel who didn't deserve it, to the church today who doesn't deserve it, there is God. Sometimes front and center in dramatic ways, other times in the background in quiet ways, doggedly and persistently, graciously remaining faithful to His people. The Lord God is a God who is faithful to His plan. He's a God who is faithful to His people. And finally, He is a God who is faithful to His King. He is a God who is faithful to His King. Remember how this encounter with David began. David wanted to build God a house. But now God says, David, you will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. Verse 11, Nathan says, uh, recounting the Lord's words, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord God will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God uses a play on words in his oracle to David. While David meant a physical temple when he spoke of building God a house, God means a dynasty when he speaks of making David a house. Like in England, the house of Windsor. It's the monarchical family that remains in power. That is what God is promising here to David. And in doing so, the contrast between David and Saul could not be more clear. While King Saul was the failed attempt of kingship, driven by the people's plans, God, David will be the successful display of kingship, driven by God's plans. Because of great sin, the kingdom was tore from Saul, so that he was left with no dynasty. But God says, I will not do that to you, David. I will not let that throne of Israel passed to another besides your line, your house. In fact, God makes clear in these verses that nothing can stop him from keeping his covenant, from being faithful to his king. Again, Pastor Davis is helpful as he explains that because of God's grace and his faithfulness, nothing can hinder the covenant. Death does not annul it, verses 12 through 13. Sin cannot destroy it, verses 14 through 15. And time will not exalt it, verse 16. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you, who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. David may die, but God will faithfully rise up generation after generation after generation from the house of David. 
to ensure that his kingdom does not fail. Just as God promised Abraham's offspring a land, so he promises David's offspring the throne. And they will fulfill David's noble desires. They will build the temple for God. More than that, though, God says that he will treat David's sons as his own son. I will be a father to your son, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. The Lord knows the human heart better than anyone. He knows the inevitable just as other people have sinned, just as David is going to sin and has sinned, so also his offspring will sin as well. But since these kings are not only David's sons, but God's sons, God will discipline him as any father would discipline his child. In fact, much of the rest of the book shows God doing that very thing. A great deal of David's reign is marred by David's sin. David was a godly man, but he was not an infallible man. Far from it. Both from having multiple wives to committing adultery, David weeps, reaps the consequences of his sins, experiencing God's discipline while also seeing God remaining faithful to his promise and not ripping the throne from his hand like he did with Saul. Then in verse 16, he says this, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Time itself is not a barrier for God's covenant promises. As time rolls on, we forget, we lose interest, we become powerless, but not God. Not God. As David would later say in Psalm 103, the steadfast love of the, of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Nevertheless, we read this and we have to wonder, how is God going to do it? After all, the son spoken of who will build God a temple, who will be disciplined for his sin as clearly Solomon. How is God going to give him an everlasting reign? The truth is, the Davidic throne itself did not last forever. And it appeared that God was not faithful to his promise. Yet in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, God brought forth a son of David who was more than a son of David. He was God in the flesh. God the son. Jesus Christ came in the Davidic line and God established a greater throne through him that would last forever. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching and says, God raised up David to be Israel's king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God sent Jesus as the divine warrior who would defeat the ultimate enemies of God's people, sin and death. And as Ephesians 1 says, when God raised Christ back up from the dead, He seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the name to come, and the one to come. And He put all things under His feet. Christ is exalted as King over all things. Yes, God was faithful to King David, but all the more so in Christ the King, David's greater son. In him we see the fullness of the promise given to David. As God's people today, we not only rejoice in that faithfulness, but we should find ourselves giving worship and service to that one true King, Jesus Christ. More than that even, we joyfully spread the news of his reign. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not anything else. And all those who would see that and embrace it, to them would be given the privilege of being called the sons of God. 
many of us at some point have applied for a job where we have had to give references. People that know us because our employers want to talk to people that know us. See, we can do a snowball job. We can say all the right things and look nice, but just be lousy workers, biding our time until the union kicks in after our, our, our 30 days are up or whatever it is. But they want to know what kind of a person we are, so they talk to people that know us. They want to know our strengths and our weaknesses. They want to know if we're really qualified for the job we're applying to get. This morning, God stands seeking the position of king over your life. He desires you to treasure Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, and to love Him more deeply than all things. And as we seek out His references in the Scriptures, we see that He is more than qualified for this position. Some of us have terribly difficult lives. We have sins of the past that we feel guilt over. We have sins of the present that we feel enslaved to. We have broken hearts and broken relationships. But we must remember that more than anything, we have a future destiny that awaits, that awaits us, an eternal destiny. That destiny will be to either love and serve our King forever or to be crushed as one of His foes. The truth is, through His Son, Jesus Christ, God already stands as King over all things. What is left is for us to simply acknowledge it and to embrace His reign. In Christ, we see a King who gave up His life as a sacrifice for sinners, atoning for their sins so that they might be reconciled to God and experience forgiveness for their sinful rebellion against Him. In Christ, we see a King who, in being raised from the dead, then pours out His Spirit upon His people so that they will not only be free from the penalty of sin, but they will also experience the power to say no to sin in their lives. In Christ, we see a king who promises never to flee the battlefield of life, leaving his people to fend for themselves. Instead, he promises to never leave them or forsake them, even when they sin and continue to rebel against him. In Christ, we see the faithfulness of God, a gracious faithfulness that calls us to bow the knee to his lordship and find joy and life under his rule over our lives. So this morning, whether it is for the first time, whether it is for the first time trusting and embracing Christ as Savior, treasure, and King, or as a Christian, by remembering your first love and renewing your desire to follow Christ as King this morning. Trust your life to the God who is faithful. Let's pray.